What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What is John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the Word of Faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these, or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism. Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at TheologyAnswers.com, and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community. Join us there at strivingforeternity.org. Good day, everyone. This is James, and I am with Edward Dalcor, and we are your host for Theology Answers. Last week, we took a week off because we had a lot of pastoral and ministerial things to do, and we appreciate you all reaching out to us and probably won't have that happen again in the near future. But just in case, we thank you all for your prayers and look forward to seeing you interact with us in the near future. If you have a question you'd like dealt with on the podcast, please go to TheologyAnswers.com and list your question there. If you have a question that is more personal in nature and you'd like a direct answer, you can also do it there. We're also a part of the Christian Podcast Community, and you can find out more about other podcasts at christianpodcastcommunity.com. Last time, we did a podcast on the issue or the two questions about the atonement. What is the atonement? Is it a definite atonement? And we answered two specific questions generally. The first one was, what's the atonement real? Did it actually do something or was it hypothetical? The other question we answered was, did Jesus die or atone for all men or just for some men, as we would call the elect? And in that conversation, we decided that it would be very beneficial for you all for us to take time and go through several passages that seem to refute the teaching that we have um, that we teach about this particular doctrine, that is unlimited, excuse me, limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. Many people say, well, the atonement is available for all people, and Jesus died for every man, or Jesus died hypothetically, but last podcast we showed very clearly, contextually, that's not true, that the Bible teaches, that means that it has a doctrine of a limited Atonement, our particular redemption, that Jesus actually physically died judicially and literally for a select people and that he accomplished the justice and righteousness of God in his death for the forgiveness of sins, the expiation of sins um, on those people so that therefore it is done. And we want to this week talk about two sets of passages and where most people come to the table and say, well, what about the, the... the, the Bible verses that say, well, God loves the whole world. Doesn't it mean he loves the whole world? Or what, what does it mean when he says he's propitiation for the whole world? And the other one is where we have a lot of some theologians who would say, well, you know, there's a Greek word, 
POS, the three-letter word POS, which means all, and all means all, all the time. And so we're going to cover those two sections of verses, what we call the world passages and the all passages. So that's sort of what we're going to be doing today. And uh, thankfully, I've got someone who's a little bit more uh, versed in the verses in the context of the grammar. So if we have to dig in and look at some of the Greek, we're going to do that as well. So for those of you who listen to this podcast, you might want to take notes. All right, Brother Edward, what do you have to say about this today? Yeah, it's good stuff, good stuff. Um, it's interesting when you were talking about the, the, the adjective pass. Um, I'll, I recall uh, Ergen Kanner, oh, yeah. and he was speaking. I don't recall where he was speaking, but he said, there's one word that refutes Calvinism, and that's the word pass. And then he went, and then he went on and on to try to explain um, why it refutes Calvinism and, and and the idea of definite atonement and so on and so forth. But of course, he was, you know, um, it was it was just poorly presented. In fact, there's there's I think there's Armenians out there who make much better arguments than Ergen Kanner. Anyways, um, I think also before we get into these passages um, that are most and you know there's many passages, but these I like to deal we like to deal with are the the ones that are used most, the ones that you will encounter um, holding to the doctrines of grace, the ones who you'll, um, in which you'll encounter more frequently. And first we have to say, I would say, I'd like to set at the, on, the onset that faith, the term faith, is never in Scripture. Um, grammatically speaking, it's never said to be the cause of justification, never the cause of justification. It's always the very instrument that God uses to justify. And that's um, uh, clearly stated in passages like Romans 5.1, Ephesians 2.8, 2 Timothy 1.9. It's just never grammatically um, denoted as, as the actual cause, but rather the actual instrument or faith is the precondition of justification. And I think um, we should also mention that the nature of this discussion really is on God's sovereignty. Yes. Um, it really is. How sovereign is God? Ephesians 1.11, it says, uh, to Panta, all things God is um, uh, working out or literally orchestrating um, uh, after the counsel of his own will. And I think that should be our starting point, that all things, to Panta, all things God is um working out or literally energizing energuntas uh, after the council, the bole, his, his purpose of his own will. And that's good news for us. That's good news Amen. for Christians. Yes, So that should be our starting point, the biblical presentation of the sovereignty of God. Now, you mentioned some passages, um, the world passages and the all passages. And really, these are the ones they use. And what's, what's um, uh, interesting, though, but, but very typical is that when you're dealing with the doctrines of grace and definite atonement, there's never a positive presentation to the passages that you provide that exegetically present the sovereignty of God in election. Right. It's always verses that oppose the other verses. And we know that scripture does not oppose other scriptures. You, you can't treat God's word like that. So I think we should discuss first the world passages, John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 3.16, you know, who doesn't know that one? Right. Uh, God so loved the world that whosoever believe him, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was from the KJV. And then 
First John two two, um, he's he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not only ours but for the whole world. And then we should deal with the all passages, which we have too, for the sake of time. And again, there's many more, but First Timothy two four, God desires all men to be saved, right? And Second Peter three nine, not wishing any to perish. And you know, I think. Um, the, when we look at this issue, the opposing arguments always revolve around these passages, do they not? The all and world yes. passages. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, so why don't we just dive in those passages and, um, sure. and explore them and, and um, get some actual biblical clarity on them. Sounds good. Let's do it. So first one is John one twenty nine, and this is where John the Baptist, after he was baptizing across the River Jordan, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So this is what it says. And, man, what a beautiful, beautiful picture. And, yes, people love to take that very sentence and want to say, this means that Jesus takes away the sin of every person in the entire world. Now, if we think about that for a second, (laughs) if that's true, then who is left to be judged by the Father? Because we see the word reconciliation. We're going to use the, you know, we're going to look at the word propitiation in the next few minutes. We, we talk about substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement. We hear the words ransom. When these aspects of the atonement are clearly taught in Scripture, then if Jesus, what, paid for the sins of all the world, he, he, he paid for them, then we have to say that Jesus ransomed for all sinners. He reconciled for all sinners. He propitiated for all sinners. He substituted for all sinners, and so on. So that is something that if 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 these verses mean that in contradiction to a limited and effectual atonement, then we have to say it also then means those things. So we we can't we can't come from the position of just generally saying that it <laughs> that he died for the you know takes away the sin of the world. What does it mean to take away the sin of the world? That's what it means to propitiate to satisfy the judgment of God to expatiate. I mean, he, he satisfied sin. So we'll go from that point of view. Uh, that's a good point. Uh, and I think before we go to the world passages, what many Arminians are, to me, unfamiliar with is how the word cosmos, cosmos. world, is utilized. Same with the word all. How it's utilized in the New Testament and the Old Testament, of course, in the Septuagint. But dealing with the New Testament, first of all, I counted about eight different meanings, clearly, linguistically defined, various meanings of cosmos, for example. And it's important because every time the Armenians would see world, the word world, cosmos, they immediately attach a universal world. Do they not? As we'll see with John 3.16 and all these things, it must mean every single person. However, um, that's probably one of the most infrequent meanings in the New Testament. Because in Romans 3.19, the word can mean every single person. It also can mean uh, unsaved humanity. Like, what does it say in John, I think, 15.18, the world hates you. Hates you. You know, they hated me. We know the author didn't hate him. You know, so it can mean all of the unwor- um, unsaved people. Uh, John 1.10, the world didn't know him 
Well, obviously, it can't mean every single person because John knew him. The author knew him. Right. Um, it can also mean Gentiles in contrast from Jews, like eleven twelve of Romans. It can mean the world system. What did John say in John twelve thirty one? Now, this is the judgment of the world, right? right? That the prince of this world will be cast out. Yes. And also in First John two fifteen, it can mean the the whole universe as a whole. Acts seventeen, it can mean the earth. You know, um, uh, in John thirteen one, it bears that out. You know, it can mean just the earth, or it can mean the known world. Not everyone in, in, inclusively. Uh, Romans 8, your faith is being reported around the world. Yeah. So here's the point. Only context dictates the meaning of world. And as you rightly said, when we come to John 129, we got to look at this term, Iro, takes away. It's a participle there. Takes away, Iron, take, taking away, literally, the sins of the world. And how complete is his taking away the sins of the world. Because yeah. if you're going to say, well, he did it completely, well, what's the big flaw there? Congra- I, as I was telling Arminian, congratulations, you're, you are a universalist. Right. If he really took away the sins of the world, because that's what the word, Iro, and here the, the present active participles use, Iro, and taking away the sins of the world. And note, just like as we'll see in First John 2, 2, it's not a future tense. It's a present active tense. He doesn't make men savable, but he takes away the sins of the world. And we would see the world here as the world, um, the, the world of those in which the Father gave to the Son, the world right. of the elect, the world of believers. And we'll um, see the same meaning in First John 2, 2 as we... Um, uh, move on in this. Yep, that's a good point. That's a good point, brother. And and what's what's really weird? You when you started it out today, and you first started talking, you talked about the idea or the point that we were really discussing the sovereignty of God. And this is a very and I say this every show we've done. I've always said this. I, I've gone back and listened. I'm, I always say this because it seems to be that the questions that we get and the context that we're looking to talk about, most of the time they're polarizing issues. And some people will argue and say, well, this is an academic issue, to which I respond, the sovereignty of God and his effectual salvation for his people and the the absolute effectuality, the efficacy of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an academic issue. It is centered on and bound to the gospel of grace so that if we are not careful, we can have a lot of knowledgeable people who are lost because they think they know who God is, but they they reject the very revelation of God, who God is, and what God has done on their behalf, or not even on their behalf, but on his behalf, for his sake and for his glory, to save his people, because that's found in the Scripture. So this is not an issue that it to, should be taken lightly. We're not just using a slash Calvinistic versus slash Arminianistic, if that's a word, uh, I, you know, theologies. We're not pitting these two against each other. We're standing on this cliff here. And we're looking out into the world, and we're saying the sovereignty of God is at stake here. It is about God being sovereign as God, Elohim, the high one, versus man being sovereign with God. 
And so that's that's why it's important. So when we look at John one twenty nine, uh, you know, it all boils down. And I'm doing a you know straight out of context this Wednesday, Lord willing, and that's one of the things I'm going to talk about using John one is learning the context of what Scripture teaches, so that we can have an understanding of what it means. But when we look at at this, takes away the sin of the world. I mean, what are we supposed to? So all of those answers that you had you know you had those different things about what the world is is it the unsaved is it every particular person is it the earth is it the universe is it the world system is it the gentiles versus the jews so what how do we how do we discern this brother what are we supposed to say to the new christian or the i I hate the word but it's the exact word that's supposed the ignorant christian who's never contemplated these things because they've always had the vitamin box bible verse Bible verse list. They've always got their verses, but they've never read the context of Scripture. They don't read it. They just have their favorite passages. And in that, they eisegetically determine what those passages mean for them rather than what God has revealed of himself. So how do we, how do we determine that then? What is the world here, brother? Well, yeah, and since it's used over half a dozen times, um, at least eight, as I uh, discovered, um, we have to ask the question, what, what is the world in which John speaks, speaks of? Okay. Well, theologically, number one, we know that the atonement was real and actual and definite, right? Not theoretical. Yeah. So if the forgiveness of sins is literal, then it can't possibly mean, because that would oppose um, just baseline theology, it can't mean that every single person has their sins forgiven and don't give me the potentiality argument, because this is a, a present tense here, taking away the sins of the world. Yes. So if the world means, if, if the taking away is literal, then it can't possibly um, be teaching a universalistic kind of theology where everyone's sin is taken away. You know, and there's nobody in hell. Hell isn't occupied. But rather how John uses it, we see that not only is the atonement real and actual and definite and not theoretical or, or potential, but the world here then would denote the believing ones. This is exactly John's argument in John 6.37 without using the word world in John 6.37. All that the ones the Father gives to me, they, Jesus says, hexe, future indicative, they will come. That's the world in which John has his, in his mind, right? Yes. As in First John 2.2, as we'll see, Christ is the halasmas. He is the propitiation. The cross work produced an actual removal of sin. Now, the, you can try to escape that, but then you have problems trying to somehow, at least lexically and theologically, say that the forgiveness of sin was not real and actual, and it was potential, where men are savable. But Scripture in no way, shape, or form teaches this. It teaches that the cross work was actual. It was an actual removal and the, of, of the forgiveness of all the sins of the ones that the Father gave to Christ. Yeah. And I think that would be contextually... Right. Um, um, correct in light of John's own theology. Correct. And th- of, a and real, of a real atonement. And that's an important point. And that it, it'll take us. And, and if we go back to John one ten, like you said earlier, uh, you know, with the world there, um, you know, we know that that doesn't mean every single person because John knew him. So we have to make a differentiation of knowing 
that number one, John's gospel has been said throughout history by rabbis that is the most Jewish of all the New Testament writings, because John's gospel centers around uh, the Passover feast and the feast of the Jews. So he continually presses this, and when you see the interaction that Jesus has with the people, the, the especially the one-on-one discourses he has recorded in the Gospel of John, we see it very much. Uh, where Jesus is illustrating the shadow, the types and shadows of Judaism as himself as the fulfillment of them. And so when you look at the the very testimony of John's gospel, what is he doing in the first 18 verses of John 1? He's giving the outline for the totality of the entire gospel narrative. And so he's showing, first and foremost, that there is a darkness that man lives in, but the light will, the darkness will not overcome the light. So there's number one that we see that the work of God in salvation will not be overcome. So that means there is no such unbelief in the heart of man that will overcome the light of the gospel of Christ, that God will shine the light, and he does so, as he says in verse 6, through John the Baptist as a beginning who bears witness about the light, that all, there's an all verse, pause, all might believe through him. He came to bear witness. But the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So right here, we have to say, okay, all and everyone does not mean every particular person in the world. What it means is those who are in the darkness, in the domain of darkness, that will be snatched out of the domain of darkness and transferred and given to the sun, like you've already mentioned in John 6. And the, the context then is right after we see the Pharisees, the Jews, the scribes, or whoever they are, I can't. I, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, the the I think the priests and the Levites. They they come and they say, "Who are you? Are you Elijah?" And what does he say? He said, "I'm not the Christ. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you?" He says, and "He says I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah said." So why do you baptize him? Why do you think you have the authority to do what we are allowed to do? We are allowed to baptize. Who do you think you are baptizing? And he says, there's one that stands before us right now. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And the next day, John the Baptist identifies the very one he spoke of in the presence of Jews when he says, here's the one who came, who is the Lamb of God to take away the sins. Now, what if he said of his people, what would the listeners of John had said then? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is our Messiah. Oh, yeah, he's come to take away our sins. But when John the Baptist said, of the world, dude, they gritted their teeth and clenched their fist. This man is going to bring salvation to Gentiles? What is wrong with you? So this totality here of the world, all that are given to the Father, who are of every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. So when we have that illumination by the Holy Spirit of the hearing of the Word of God, we see that in the context there, and that is that is what it means in the world. And quite honestly, we can move on to John three sixteen if you want to, brother. Uh, that that's the same point. He's talking to the teacher of Israel. He's talking to the what uh, a Pharisee, and he uses Jewish scripture out of Deuteronomy and says, "As Moses lifted the serpent, so the Son of Man be lifted up." And Nicodemus is still confused, isn't he? He's he's confused. So let's talk about John. Let's talk about John three sixteen for a minute. 
Okay, um, <clears throat> I think John 3.16 is probably the most uh, popular passage, and it's the most misapplied and misinterpreted passage, right. and uh, the most frequently quoted passage. Problem is, most folks um, interpret scripture uh, through in- tradition and not confirmation, not exegetical confirmation. And traditionally, we have the KJV reading just like the Lord's Prayer. I mean, at my church, we don't use a, I mean, that's not the translation of the church, the KJV. But I tell you, virtually at every church I've been to, when they recite the Lord's Prayer, it's always in King James English because traditionally that's how we are, you know, grown to love it. Um, In John 3.16, you have the same thing. We have, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now I'm reading from the KJV. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now there's a few problems here. Um, And I find that it's twofold. Number one, people come to the text with a presupposition of a universal atonement. They already right. come to the text thinking that Jesus' atoning work was for every single person, right. but no one in particular. Right. And they, tr- because of that, they traditionally quote the KJV, which is a mistranslation of the adjective pass as meaning whosoever, right? right. Second flaw that I find, along with the word for all, pass, a universal meaning is also imposed on the word uh, world. Right. But there's a lot to say. We'll try to um, really abbreviate this, but there's a lot to say on this passage in terms of context, yeah. which actually starts in verses 14 and 15, where, um, you know, dealing with the snake of the wilderness in Numbers 21, right. which Nicodemus would have been completely familiar with. Now, it doesn't really... Um, uh, it doesn't really add or subtract from the interpretation. It doesn't make a difference whether Jesus is speaking these words or the narrator. The narrator. We don't really know exactly. Nevertheless, the context starts in verses 14 and 15 dealing with the snake in the wilderness. And the particularities of the event are completely contextually, completely and contextually interrelated with John 3.15 and 16. Interesting, a couple facts about the, the, uh, the bronze serpent. It was the only means of healing or deliverance for God's people. The only means that God provided. And it relates to trusting in the Son as the only means of salvation, right? And number two, which is very interesting, in verses 14 and 15 of John 3, we read, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Right. Which is almost an identical reading, 15 and 2, uh, to verse 16. 16, right. And so here, so here's what we have. We do have the affirmations of God's redemptive love to everyone believing. And this is how he shows uh, this is the extent of his love by sending his son into the world. A couple points. The word world, as already shown, has various meanings. I was just looking in John um, uh, 12.29. It says, a crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered, and others were saying, um, I'm sorry, uh, John 12, uh, I think it's 19. Let me go to that. John 19. Um, so the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Yes. Now, it'd be right. absurd to say that every single person gone after has gone after Christ, because right. even today it's not true. 
So it's a misinterpretation and just a careless way to handle the word world. And it's, it, it's always attached to a presupposition of autosegerism or universalism. Right. So that's a huge reason to, to, um, to misrepresent it. But if you're going to stay consistent with your interpretation of world in John 3.16, then you're going to have to carry that over to verses 17 and 18, yes. which would, again, teach universalism because it says he wants to save the whole world. In the phrase, um, and this is important, everyone believing is how it literally reads, um, which is a mistranslation, the KJV, of whosoever. There is no whosoever in the Greek text. The Greek phrase here is pas ha pistuon, literally all the believing ones or everyone believing. So to assert the view of a universal non-atonement, definite atonement, um, would actually go against the, the, the actual Greek reading. And the, what's in support of that would be a KJV traditional reading, which is a mistranslation. But the phrase in Greek teaches no such thing. It's rather, because it's a present tense participle here, rather it's a promise to eternal life to who? All the ones doing the action of the participle, believing. That's who it's to. All the ones doing the action of the verb. Everyone now believing has eternal life. Yes. Um, next, we have the word all, pas, ha, pis, to own, all the believing ones, or everyone believing. Uh, first, there's no idea here that indicates a universal, undefined invitation to salvation, as many assume. It just doesn't, re- it doesn't teach that. Um, not, not in Greek, it doesn't. Second, it's incorrect to translate the word all, uh, or pass as equating whosoever as in whosoever will believe. Rather, in the original, all or everyone who is believing now. That's how that phrase, that participle phrase reads. In fact, most modern translations, even the New King James, actually correct, give you a correct reading, um, whoever believes or everyone who believes in in the NET, or most literal in Young's translation, everyone who is believing, right? And uh, two more points on this. Uh, the next word is pistuon, the, the word translated believes, which is actually a present tense participle, believing. And it's denoting the ongoing action of the Christian. And in John's literature, we find that present active uh, participles are normally used in salvation contexts to denote the life of a true believer all over the place. They're present tense participles. So grammatically, the adjective pass all or every, modifies the participle phrase, ha pistuon, the one believing, right? Right. So what we have is the one or every, all, all the ones who are doing the action of the verb, right? Right. And now, since we exegeted this passage, everyone now believing. Now let's go to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Right. If you were going to stay consistent, as I just mentioned, maintaining the notion of a, of a universal world, then you would have to accept the notion of a universal salvation, verse 17, right. um, because it says he, he came to save the world, right? Syntactically, this is a very important point, the sentence starts with the, the it's called a postpositive, it's a conjunction for, right, like in, in verse 16, yes. for God so loved the world which carries a, a, 
ex, uh, uh, a, a force of explaining something, right? Mm-hmm. In order that, and it carries the meaning of, of, of truly, therefore, the fact is, or an indeed something, right? Right. And it's this affirmation or this conclusion that John is actually communicating here. Um, and, I, you know, it's really interesting, James. There, I found a, a, uh, a commentary. There's a commentary to actually John 3.16 made by the author where John himself provides an excellent commentary on John 3.16 in 1 John chapter 4. And we, we see these parallels like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And in 1 John 4.9, for this is love that God was manifested in us. Yes. And 3.16, he gave his only begotten son. And in 1 John 4.9, God sent his only begotten son into the right. world. And now, now get this last part. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, so that we might live through him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our oh, sins. Yes. Beautiful. Clearly showing the intention of John's, um, uh, of his teaching in John three sixteen. Right. So to recap, it's everyone now believing. Us, it's a promise to the elect. Everyone now that believing who are doing the action of the participle, pistuon. Everyone that's doing that will have eternal life, does not perish. And then it says the son came to the world. He came to the world not to judge it. That he's talking about the elect. It has to be talked about the elect because he does judge the non-elect. He does judge the unregenerate that the world might be saved through him. So I think any other um, interpretation would be going outside the bounds of the exegesis and linguistics of the passage. And the Arminian interpretation in John 3.16 is based on a traditional understanding and not an exegetical one. Right. That's correct. And and what's really funny about that is I know our listeners are going, man, I'll never be able to get this out of it because I don't have the Greek chops to do it. You don't need the Greek chops. You need to understand one thing. People that cite this type of anybody without, you know, you know, whoever, whatever, whosoever, they use that term whosoever, and they say, so whosoever will, et cetera. That means anybody and everybody. Well, whosoever is a an archaic Middle English word that if we translate it directly into contemporary English, it means whoever. And if we content and if we if we put it in our current grammatical usage, it actually is who. Those who believe. So whosoever does not have any other meaning except those who believe. Who? Whoever believes, whoever is believing, and whoever is believing has life through the finished work of Christ. Whoever is not believing is condemned already, and that's the that's the thing that we need to recognize. And and, and beloved, I don't I don't know why that's not warm for us who are being saved. To me. You know, I'm just like, let's stop the podcast and let's just celebrate. <laughs> let's have a worship time of gratitude toward the Lord because of what he's done through the work of Christ, his son, without which we would all perish in our sins. We need to be more thankful for the salvation that God has granted and so sovereignly, ex- uh, you know, uh, um, it, not just expressed, but executed in such a way, literally, that it is certain versus 
trying to put God into the fairness of a humanistic mindset because it is not for us to judge what God has revealed. We either believe it, those who are in Christ and have the Spirit, the Spirit are the words of life, as Jesus teaches in John 6. So the Spirit is also the giver of life, as he has already said in John 3. The Spirit testifies to us that the word of Christ is true. So God has revealed himself this way. And you've said it several times over, Eddie, that you know, people come from a traditional point of view. And it's, it's, it's funny, though, that that's the term and the actual um, way and means through which they're interpreting this uh, because it is what they call themselves, the traditionalists. You know, nobody uses the name Armenian anymore in, in the Baptist circles because they're really not. <laughs> they are Armenian in some sense because they don't believe in the in, – in, 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 you know, they believe that the gospel is just this opportunity. They, but if we get down to it, they've, they've become the, the double heretical theolo- theologians in that they've taken the sovereignty of God off the table, but they've also put the idea that Christ did something that could be received – but it did not have effect because they all deny universalism, even though that's what they teach. Right. And then they turn right back around and say, well, the reason that that's option, that, that it must be an issue of us receiving it, you know, is man is not depraved. Man is not, you know, utterly <laughs> unable. And I know we're going to do that podcast. I don't know if it'd be next week or the week after, but we've got that on the on the books. What is what is total oh. depravity? You know, um, yeah. What does it? What does it? What does it do? And how are we supposed to approach it? And that's really where the traditionalist mindset comes from. I have this God that I've been taught since a child, who loves every single person in the world without exception, and desires every human being that has ever lived or ever will live to be saved. And He is not fulfilling His desire, and He's offered His Son as an option, theoretically, if you will, please, whosoever will, come, come, please, oh Lord, oh, and God is wringing His hands just by that little tiny. And I know it may be even rude to say, but just by that little tiny expression that I just did, it, it paints a picture of a weak, infantile God without power. When the Scripture says, I will do all that I desire, the counsel of my will will not be thwarted. I'll cause a bird to fly. I can cause a man to move. The Scripture even shows to the prophets that God himself put in the hearts of kings so that he would make them call for a census so that he could gather the people to a city. So when we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about a God that does as he pleases, and there is none that he answers to. But there is this, and people say, well, why do, why do we have so many arguments about this? Well, here's why. I believe here's why. The Bible says that the natural man cannot discern spiritual things because he is not spiritually discerning. So that means that those who continue to fight for the right of self-will and self-sovereignty and fairness and oppose the clear contextual teaching of the gospel that is given to us in the New Testament, they are unregenerate, and therefore they cannot acknowledge the truth. And so, and that's, and you know, one of our, matter of fact, our first podcast, we talked about exhaustive versus uh, sufficient knowledge for salvation. And we, we defined yep. those two things, and we expressly, you know, delineated that sufficient knowledge is first and foremost by the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby one believes what is clearly revealed. 
and they don't have to have they don't have to know the names and the labels theologically behind these things, but they will not reject them when they're correct according to scripture because they have the spirit of God. And that's that's difficult for us because we want everybody to be saved. But here's the rub. Do we really love people if we're willing to let them sit in a resolved position of a false gospel versus teaching them the truth of the sovereignty of God and election and salvation? So that only that's the only means to which God saves is to teach the true gospel. So but uh, you know, that, that's a whole other podcast there. But we've we've got about twenty five, twenty three more minutes to go, so let's let's continue in that. Do we want to do first John two two now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, one point I want to mention on back to John three sixteen. Just the okay. first word in the Greek text is uh, hutos. hutos. And I, I noticed that people emphasize God loved the world so much. Right. But no. the 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 actual adverb there is very interesting. Um, it does, a more literal translation than so would be um, in this manner. In this manner. Or right. in such a condition or to this extent. To express the actual result, hence God's love is demonstrated in the giving of His Son, and so um, uh, I think you know that's where I think if one should uh, wants to really um, discover the beautiful meaning of this passage, consult a Greek text, consult an interlinear, consult the word meanings, and so on and so forth, and you'll see the literal reading of John three sixteen is to this extent indeed love the God the world that the Son, the one and only, he gave in order that everyone believing in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was the Greek syntactical um, uh, rendering there. Um, Okay, let's go to, let me pull it up my text, 2 John, or I'm sorry, 1 John 2.2. Yeah, 1 John 2.2. Starts off with Jesus uh, promising us, uh, when we do sin, we have an advocate. We have a parakletos. We have a someone who who is called to be alongside of us, and that in and of itself is just um, a, should be a comfort to all Christians. I'm reading from the NASB, and he himself. This is verse two. Is the propitiation for our sins, yes. and not for our sins only, but also for those in the whole world. Now. It's the phrase of those for the whole world. Well, as yes. we, last time you and I were um, doing this podcast, we were talking about some of the positive affirmations of definite atonement. And we were given some of the passages that so beautifully teach that the atonement, the propitiation is a definite one. This is one of them. But what happens with the Arminians, they focus on the last part of this verse, not only uh, but also, not only ours, but also for those in the whole world. First, as I mentioned last time, the phrase here, the first phrase, kai altos halasmas estin, and he propitiation, atoning sacrifice, is, and I pointed out that the, the verb here is in the present, it's not a future tense, Christ is not potentially the atoning sacrifice, right? He's not potentially... Um, uh, the the one who redeems and averts the wrath, but he actually does it. He is esteem. So that's problematic for anyone who takes this verse in any other way because you have a present tense verb. But we went through the meaning of halasmus, uh, atoning sacrifice, and, and what that means linguistically and lexically last time we were we were talking. So we 
you know, and we, we established that the halasmas, the atoning sacrifice, was real and actual and it's present tense. And it not only cleansed us or forgave us our sins, but it removed the wrath. So if it's the whole world, hey, let's all be universalists because yeah. the whole world's wrath is removed. But uh, it's that phrase, the whole world. Yes. Um, there's an adjective here translated the whole, right? Whole. Um, halas, right? The whole yeah. world. It reads uh, halu to kosmu. The whole world. That's how it actually reads. Now, the, the, the adjective here can mean complete, entire, all, whole, just like all the words, right, in, um, that we've been discussing. They're decided by context, right? And this word can mean all kinds of things, parts of pieces, parts of a whole, or as Thayer says, uh, at some places it denotes uh, the whole city opposed to other cities. Look how it's used in some of the places in Scripture. Mark one thirty three, and the whole city gathered. Yes. Now, is Mark actually saying that every single person in the city gathered? No, he's <laughs> not. Or how about John 11? I know you quoted this before, John eleven forty nine and 50. But one of them... Uh, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said to them that year, said to them, you know nothing, nor do you take into account that uh, it It is is expedient for you that one man may die uh, die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. You know, literally it says the whole, uh, all the nation. Now we know this cannot mean every single person that he's talking about, every single person in the nation. Um, you know, and, and, uh, and it's the same word as in, in 1 John 2, 2, and one more, Romans 1, 8. Paul says, I thank God, my God, through Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is being reported throughout uh, Halan, Halas, the whole world. Now, you cannot say this means every single person. So you see how the word um, whole is used throughout Scripture. Yes. So what does John mean when he says, and not for our uh, not for uh, ours only, he's a propitiation, but for those in the whole world. Well, we can't mean it, uh, that the propitiation is for every single person, because that would teach universalism. But how does he use, how is first-person plurals used in the, in the text when he says our, um, not for ours only, but for the whole world in contrast? Well, yeah. sometimes these plural pronouns can be used in an exclusive sense, where the author is just speaking to his, his associates. Right, maybe co-authors or, or those physically present, you know, distinct from his audience. Then there's an inclusive meaning to for, uh, plural pronouns to include both the author, his associates, and his audience, right, and people outside of his audience, everyone. And then there's the, one more. There's there's the uh, plural pronouns used in an epistolary sense, which is very rare in the New Testament, where where an author would be saying. We are not, you know, we are not amused, you know, right. uh, meaning just me, but I'm using the plural. That's very rare, and I'm not sure if I can even give you an example. So since the halasmas, the propitiation, is definite in, in the present tense, we know John is speaking inclusively when he says not for ours. In other right. words, not only for him, not only for his associates and his right. church, but he's a propitiation for many outside of his church, the whole world. Right. Men, right. Uh, men who were purchased by God, um, purchased for God with the Son's blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and every nation, the many. Just like John, Jesus said in Mark 10.45, um, 
he didn't come to serve, to give his life um, a ransom. Uh, Lutron anti Paloon, a ransom for the many, and also Isaiah 53. So I think clearly in in um, Second John or First John 2 2, it's dealing with not just you guys, but even the Jews and Gentiles outside of our church who are saved. Mm, that's right. You know, you brought up John 11, which is one of my favorite. You know, it's the pivoting point for Jesus uh, when he proved his divinity and and inexcusable way, <laughs> undeniable way, by bringing a man back from the dead who had been uh, dead for four days. And Caiaphas, of course, you mentioned verses 49 and 50 of John 11. But if, in, if you read on in verse 51, I was looking at that as you read it. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not wow. for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, tell me that's not just about a parallel of First John two two. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. Think yeah. about that. These things, you know, he prophesied. John says these things are right to you, and then John eleven fifty one he prophesied Jesus Christ the righteous in John two is Jesus in John eleven fifty one. He is a propitiation for he would die for our sins versus the nation. Not ours alone, not only for the nation, but also Ooh. but also the world, the whole world versus the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's just good, as if, if it's just you know an identical expression there. But the most important thing is that that undergirds I mean, first John two two is used so often to destroy the idea that the Bible teaches limited atonement. Um but it doesn't. It undergirds it in such a way because we're talking about the believing ones of the world are currently propitiated for by the person of Jesus and the finished work of atonement. They are – it is finished. Jesus said it is finished. He didn't say, well, there you go. Hope you take it. <laughs> he didn't say, well, I'm working on this. It is finished. Potentially. It's potential. No, it is, he is a certain Savior. He is a particular Savior. He has finished the work of redemption. And what's amazing, he did not say this of his own accord. That means that he had no – he was saying it based on the fact that he did not want Israel to come under the oppression anymore from Rome. It's better we kill this one guy because they knew he was God because he raised a man from the dead. They knew he was the Christ. They knew he was Messiah. All right, in their cognitive minds, they knew it. All right, there's no way around that. But they could not stomach the fact that what they thought Messiah would do and be was not who Jesus was and did. So instead of relinquishing who they were. They loved the glory that came from men rather than the glory that came from God, who was Jesus Christ. And they said, we have to put him to death, and anyone who has information, let us know so that we might arrest him. That's what they did. And so Jesus then, what? Raises Lazarus with great splendor so that he would be arrested. That's good. So see this stuff. Brother, we've got about 10 oh, yeah. minutes. You yeah. want to try to tackle some of the uh, all passages? Or you yes. Let, okay. let, you know, I think in, let's uh, give five minutes to each, uh, maybe okay. three minutes to this one, and then we'll uh, go to the hallmark of the Armenians. It's because, I say that because uh, all these pictures I've yeah. seen on the, on the, yeah, on the, on the wall, Second Peter 3, 9. Um, first, uh, first Timothy 2, 4. Um, sure. Starting with three, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. 
Okay, so it's uh, verse 4. God, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of, of, of the truth. Now, we're looking at all the, um, we're looking at some all passages. We'll look at 1 Timothy here, 2-4, and then we'll look at 2 Peter 3-9. As with the word, as with the term cosmos, the word world, the term all carries various meanings as well. Again, context, context, context. Um, Acts 22, remember Ananias, uh, verse 14, he said, here's what he said. He said, the God of our fathers has appointed you, he's speaking to Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the utterance from his mouth in verse 15 of Acts 22, for you will be a witness for him to pantos anthropos, to all men. Now, I, I quoted that in the Greek text because, as we'll see, we see the same phrase in First Timothy, pantos uh, anthropos, all men of which you have seen and heard. Now, we know this doesn't mean all Every single man, because Paul was not a witness to every single man. Right. And um, so let's, let's look at this defining context. First, notice starting out, and I'm looking at my time, so it won't go over. Notice yeah. verses 1 and 2 in First Timothy. Because all normally people. the Armenians, Christians, Calvinists do it too. I mean, yeah. all Armenians aren't the only ones. They take a verse out of a context. We don't have to do that. Notice the various kinds of men in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, Paul says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving, now listen to this, made uh, hooper panton on behalf of all anthropon, on behalf of all men, for kings, and panton, all who are in authority, in order that they may, may lead tranquil and quiet lives, a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And verse 3, this is a good acceptable, good and acceptable in the sight of a God our Savior, who desires pantos anthropos, the same term as Acts 22.15, all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and Anthropone and men, and I'm emphasize. I'm saying these things parenthetically. All in men, that the man, uh, the man Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, who perpantone for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. And in verse eight, therefore, I want men in every place. Lifting up the holy hands without wrath or dissension. Now, the problem, if Christ was a potential mediator here, meaning um, uh, between God and men, and it says all men, as some Arminians would assert, he's a potential mediator because it says he's a mediator between men. You can't say it's all men here, but it's just some men here. Then it would follow that every time someone refuses to come to Christ, Christ fails at his mediatorial role. But yet the text does not say that. It says he's the meteor between God and men. He's not the meteor between non-elect. He's not the meteor between uh, the unsaved, but only the saved. Verse 6 says Christ will give himself as a ransom for all. If a ransom was real and not some kind of potentiality, a ransom perhaps for all men, it would follow that every single person is now redeemed. 
Yeah. That's if the ransom was that because it says men, you can't separate it. Right. Um, so that dismisses the all men, how Paul uses men, because in the next verse, in verse five, you would have to say that's the same men as in verse four. Right. See what I'm saying? And, yeah. and I don't think an Arminian would say he's the mediator for the unregenerate. Right. But here's what's very interesting. Come to the knowledge of truth. Did you know we find in Greek the same exact phrase in 2 Timothy 2.24 and 25? We read the Lord's bondservant but, uh, should not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to be ta- patient when wrong. Yes. And this, listen to verse 25. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading, and here's the phrase, to the knowledge of truth. You have the same phrase, this knowledge of truth, to knowledge, same preposition used, ace, knowledge of truth as you have in 1 Timothy 2.4 where it was granted and we have just a, a boatload of passages to show that faith was granted, particularly Philippians one twenty nine. So, um, in sum, this, the, the, the all men is the same men as verse f- uh, 5. You can't separate it. And the all men are all kinds of men because he mentions different cl- categories of people, kings and those who are in authority and so on and so forth, right? And he uses, just follow how he uses all and men, and you'll find it's all kinds of men, those whom Christ is the mediator. Yes, that's right. Amen. Something interesting, too, about the context of this, brother, is that, you know, when we read it, and I'm, I'm really big on reading the text, reading the whole text. Listen to, listen to this as I read it. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So right there, when you hear it in context, you see the point that Paul is making, is that he urges us to pray for all types of people, not just for the church, not just for the, 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 the believing ones, and that we see that God even desires those types of people to be saved. He calls out kings, not just paupers. He calls out Jew, Gentiles, not just Jews. And then Paul says, he says, for this reason, I was appointed a preacher. What? That Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this reason, I was appointed a preacher and apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. So he's saying there, contextually, he wants the Gentiles to hear that the gospel is for them also, for all people, not just for the Jews. Because he's talking to Timothy. All kinds of people. Yeah, all kinds of people. So I think it's just one of those things that just common sense, grammar, gives you the answer when we're not reading it through a tradition. And listen, I grew up in the traditionalist mindset. I grew up in that, and as I saw it continue, it, it never made sense to me as I saw what Scripture taught versus what was being taught and preached from the pulpits of America. But anyway, we could go on and on about that. Do we have time? We've got about two minutes left. Um 
I personally think we probably should just save Second Peter three. I think we could do half an hour on that text alone, <laughs> if you wanted to. But uh, what's your what's your thoughts on uh, that? You want to you want to add it on into another podcast? Um, yeah, uh, you know, it does, I, I can do. Let's see, we've been about fifty eight, fifty seven minutes. Um, yeah, why don't we? Yeah, why don't we? Um, uh, we can do it on another, you know, podcast if you'd like. And I think it would it would it comes to the same thing. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's the same type of mindset that we've been talking about this entire hour, that we have to rightly understand that if we reject universal atonement, we must put the context as the as the arbiter of the meaning. And we know better to say universalism is taught by Scripture, we know better. Because Jesus says in John 5, all who hear the voice of the Son of Man will be raised to life from the graves, some unto everlasting righteousness and some unto everlasting punishment. So we know there is no such thing as a universal salvation. So then in these things we have to come to a to a, um, to realize this is a this is a pastoral issue, this is a theological issue, this is an ecclesiological issue, this is a gospel issue, and it is not peripheral, it is not academic, it is life and life eternal versus eternal damnation. So we need to get it right, and we need to teach the gospel correctly. But in closing there, do you have any last things you want to say, brother? Yeah, I think just, you know, when we're coming to these, if you haven't been exposed to good teachings on these things, we have to stay exegetical and not necessarily traditional. We have to stay confirmatory with these kind of things. So we won't, and you, you mentioned a very good point about um, it, it's our responsibility as teachers to to uh, not only expand and expound on on, on a positive sense in uh, uh, biblical doctrines, but also to refute those who oppose them. And yes, definitely on the gospel, but even on on secondary issues, uh, on misinterpretations, and all these things, it, we we if we know the truth, the most loving thing we're going to do is tell them the truth. And I, you know, I I always say, but hey, don't you don't take my word for it. You know, do the homework, do the work yourself, because right. God's word is holy. We don't want to misrepresent it. If you're serious about um, the biblical author's meaning, the plain meaning, then do the work. Don't yes. be afraid of the text and going outside of your tradition. Just confirm it exegetically. Yeah. yeah, and most of all, pray. Pray that the Lord would show you the truth, and God the Holy Spirit will give you the understanding that you're looking for. And something, too, to be said, you and I have had this conversation many times over the last year or so, but there are so many people who are very well-versed in Scripture who have a very good platform on which they could teach the positive attributes of right doctrine. But we, it is so easy for us to get so flustered about people who refute truth that we can actually become the drumbeater of the of the heres of the heretics we can actually give more attention to the wrong thing and to the person teaching wrongly than we can to the right thing we need to remember that the lord saves through the clear teaching of the of the scripture and we don't need to major on those areas of the script where the scripture just very quickly goes over so in other words if we want to talk about what the scripture teaches 
let us do it in the same measure in which the apostles did it. The apostles gave positive correction, positive instruction, and they spent their time teaching the doctrine that we find in the Scripture. So let's do the same thing. And we're so glad you took time out of your day to listen to us. You can see Edward's website over at ChristianDefense.org, my blog over at AnchoringFaith.org. We love you all. We're praying for you. We're looking forward to hearing from you throughout the week. Go to TheologyAnswers.com and post your questions.